0: What's some of the cutting-edge technology in dentistry? Well, I can for sure tell you Dandy is, and they are a fully digital lab that's revolutionizing the dental industry. I know you're tired of dealing with the same old, time-consuming, error-prone lab processes, and Dandy's here to change all that. Let me tell you five quick reasons why you should switch to Dandy and start experiencing the future of dentistry right now. Number one, they have increased efficiency. I mean, with Dandy's digital solutions, you'll save time and streamline your workflow from digital impressions to 3D printing. Everything is faster and more accurate with Dandy. Number two, better patient outcomes. With Dandy's precision technology, you'll be able to provide your patients with custom fit dental appliances that result in better outcomes. Three, All-in-one management, Dandy's platform allows you to manage patient records, appointments, and lab work all in one place, saving you time and reducing the risk of errors. Expert training and support, Dandy's team of experts are always available to provide training and support whenever you need it, ensuring you have all the resources you need to succeed. And 5. Virtual consultations, with Dandy's virtual consultations you can see patients from anywhere without ever leaving your office, it's a game changer for dentists everywhere guys. And six, just a quick bonus, they're going to give you a free three-shaped Trio scanner, so you're already saving over 20000 bucks right there. So there you have it. Five, kind of six, reasons why you should switch to Dandy and start experiencing the future of dentistry. So click on the first link in the show notes below and check them out. Right now, they're giving a free three-shaped Trio scanner and $250 in lab credits just for being a listener of the Dental Marketer podcast. So click the first link in the show notes below to find out more. And don't settle for the same old lab process anymore. Join the revolution today and take your practice to the next level. Get dandy. Hey guys, welcome back to the Dental Marketer Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Arias. And in this episode, I am speaking with Kevin Kumbis.
1: We really push on folks to ask yourself why you want to go from one location to two and from two locations to four. And let's, let's start with the end in mind so we know where we're going and we can be better selected with, you know, what we're looking for in a, in a target, what we're looking for in an associate, what we're looking for in a potential partner, because it's, it's just, it's too easy to make mistakes without a plan.
0: extremely smart guy, and he's a broker and owns a firm called Tusk Partners. And what they do is they bring dentists the value they deserve when selling their practice to a DSO, DPO, or IDSL, right? So Tusk has completed over 200-plus dental transactions across all dental specialties. But now Kevin started off in the Wall Street game and transitioned into where he is today. But in the middle of that, he made deals with affordable dentures... He started his own practice. I mean, he has done a lot. And now when he made his own practice, when he started it up, he said that that was the most stressful time of his life. And eventually he sold it. So we discuss what he had to do to make it profitable to sell. And we also talk a bit about the history of Heartland and how they are uh, one of the major players who started buying single practices in DSOs. And we also discuss what truly matters most. He says it's cash flow or EBITDA. And that's what buyers want. He mentions how your revenue is just cocktail talk. So we dive deep on how your books and everything should look if you are looking to buy or sell. And we also talk about the state of the economy today and uh, his opinion on how he believes your practice will run through the recession. So that's, that's really interesting. And you definitely want to listen to that part because he lets us know that dental practice valuations are really healthy, but there's a storm cloud on the horizon. So look out for that. We also talk about how, when is it time to cut your losses with the practice and when should you keep it and try to write out the tough time you're going through. So we discuss all that and also what he loves and hates about dentistry and so much more. So without further delay, here is Kevin Cumbus. Kevin, how's it going? Good, Michael. How about you? Oh, thanks. Do it. Things are going pretty well. Pretty well. If you don't mind me asking, where are you located right now?
1: So today I'm in Charlotte, North Carolina. This is where our, uh, our headquarter offices, where most of our team works, although we do have team members in uh, Columbus, Ohio, Denver, Colorado, Utah, and down in Dallas, Texas.
0: Normally, where do you stay at? Yeah, I live in Charlotte. I live oh, okay. 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 So like in the name, the uh, same area. What You mentioned you have, I guess, like locations everywhere. What is that?
1: Oh, no, no. So I, I'm not a practice owner, right? All, all we do is sell dental practices. We work with dentists and entrepreneurs that, that want to sell to either DSOs or, or private capital, meaning private equity groups or family funds. But I've got team members inside of Tusk that live in those cities I mentioned.
0: Mm-hmm. So Tusk. Okay. So rewind a little bit. Let us know about your past, your present. How did you get to a, what you're doing right now?
1: Yeah, sure. Happy to do it. So I think it's important for, for folks to know that my dad's actually a pediatric dentist. So I was kind of raised in his practice, uh, Was had been around dentistry my entire life. I actually wanted to be a dentist, but the chemistry department where I went to school said that was not going to happen. I just, I didn't, ha- I didn't have the grades for it. Good news was I was you know, an accounting, econ nerd and all that stuff and ended up parlaying that into a career in Wall Street. So I was up in, in New York for about four years and then re in at business school and then investment banking here in Charlotte. Uh, so that was about a 10-year run in finance and investment banking. And then my father introduced me to a company that was helping him sell his dental practice to his associate. And it felt like the perfect thing to be doing. Um, always loved uh, the business of the dentistry. Uh, always had empathetic for dentists because their, their job is really, really hard, right? It's chief clinical officer. It's chair psych, psychiatrist to the team. It's head of HR, chief marketing officer all the risk lives with you clinically. And for the privilege of all of that, you get paid to last, right? It's kind of a lonely profession. And the businesses that dentists build, be in the solo group space, are extremely, extremely valuable. And they, they deserve to be taken care of the right way by someone who, who understands really what goes on in that world. So when, when you know, dad was instrumental in making that, that connection to a broker here in North Carolina, worked with him for about four years, did over a hundred transactions there, um, and then I got turned on to the DSO space. We started selling practices to Heartland Dental Care, mm-hmm. uh, which is one of the big aggregators uh, still to this day. Uh, and for me, the light bulb came out. I knew I wanted to be involved in the DSO economy in some manner. Um, surveyed the opportunities out there and, and found myself with affordable dentures um, in operations and business development for them. And over my tenure, they went from 120 locations to about 210 over a 3 year run. rod. So just rapid, rapid growth, uh, great access to the C-suite, uh, and they were they were so helpful in helping me understand value creation inside of a private equity-backed DSO. The education I got there is something I lean on each and every day with our, with our clients here at Tusk because the buyers have a certain view on value creation that needs to be known so you can negotiate against that and use that in, uh, when you're trying to create a great deal for your client. So hmm. did, did the DSO thing for a little while, I actually left and built a dental practice on my own. South Carolina is kind of the wild west of dental practice ownership. You don't have to be a dentist to own a practice. So, Buddy and I started a business down there. Over about three and a half years, we grew up to about 1.4, 1.5 million. And I got to live the life that my father lived, except I wasn't gloving up and, and putting my fingers in people's mouths. Um, so, I did everything but the dentistry. And, Michael, it was the most stressful time of my life. And I'd never made less money in my entire career. But what I learned was so impactful. Um, I think dad hid a lot of the trouble, like the hard parts of business ownership from me. And then I got to you know, experience them firsthand with hundreds of thousands of hours, of debt, personally guaranteed and all that stuff. And it really helped me mature into, uh, I would say, the informed advisor that, that I've become. Sold that to the associate and, and started Tusk. And, As I share with you, we've got 13 team members here today. All we do is work with dentists and groups that want to sell their business to a DSO or or private equity group. So that's the evolution. Tusk is now seven years young. Uh, We've done about three quarters of a billion dollars worth of transactions. We work across all specialties in all states. I count ourselves as lucky that we get to do it. I mean, when you're helping somebody sell their life's work, it's a real honor that they've Selected you and elected to walk with you. So, really, really couldn't be happier with what I get to do each and every day.
0: Nice. Okay. So, you guys right now, Tusk Partners is like the broker, right? To sell to the. Okay. Gotcha. Gotcha. Rewind a little bit. I've always been curious when people say, Hey, I went to Wall Street. Wall Street is a wall, like a street, right? Like in New York, right? Is it all covered in investment banking or like, what were you doing there?
1: No, it's it's more of like, I feel like it's a term people understand with finance, right? So I, I worked at Bear Stearns, and I also worked at a company called Mercy, Tradescape, Then E-Trade was all bought. But it's all finance, right? I was a sales trader in both of those roles. And, you know, it just, it's just a more overarching term for the investment banking, finance, sales trading world. Uh, but a lot of those businesses, they may have a, a storefront on Wall Street, but their offices are all over the city and all over the nation.
0: Gotcha. In many cases, all over the world. Yeah, 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 yeah. Interesting. Okay. And then fast forward a little bit. You partnered up with a broker in North Carolina, right?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So there was a broker that was kind enough to allow me to work with him and really uh, taught me the ropes. And this this broker was focused on uh, really creating partnerships, right? So there'd be a valuation done. I got to say, Michael, it was so interesting. We would, we would request all this information from the dentist. You got to keep in mind, like, this is. This is 15, 16 years ago. And they would send us three inches of printouts from their EagleSoft and from their accounting. So we have three inches of printout, printed data now that we got to put into Excel. And I mean, we would spend days on these on these accounts. And finally, we we get it done and bit. We so we'd have the numbers right finally. And then we would run seven different valuation methodologies. Mm-hmm. So we do like a capitalization of income, an asset approach, a discounted cash flows, market comparables. Boom, 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 boom. On, on, on. Of the 100 transactions, 100 deals I've valued, they all came back, every single one of them, where it came back and the value being somewhere between 75 to 90% of collections, every single one of them. And I went to my boss, I'm like, why are we spending so many hundreds of hours doing this work if the answer is always the same? Like, it seems ridiculous. It's like, well, it gives me some academic understanding of why we're doing that. I said, I get it, but still. If the answer is the same, it doesn't matter. Uh, Because what was happening in the world at that time was most of the deals we were doing were dentist-to-dentist transactions, right? One dentist selling his or her practice to another dentist. And the reason the values were coming in at that level is because it was what the lenders were willing to loan to an individual dentist to buy a dental practice, 70 to 90% of collections. That helped me understand that there is an artificial ceiling or there was an artificial ceiling on dental practice valuations back when the buyer pool was primarily dentists because dentists didn't want to put any money into the deal, right? They wanted 100% loan from the bank to cover the bounty of the investment in the practice. And when DDSOs like Hartland came in and said, oh, I see Dr. Smith, you got an offer from you know Dr. Johnson there for 70% of collections. We're going to offer you 100% of collections which when you do the math, it's like four to five times EBITDA, nothing. I mean, they're practically stealing these businesses. But it was so much more than individual dentists could pay. It was a really compelling value proposition for a a senior dentist, right? He's selling his practice. He gets to do this one time. All that really matters is the cash out because he depends on the stowers for retirement. So Heartland solved a a major problem. Now that others are involved and there's over 150 private equity-backed DSO aggregators in the market, they're bidding against one another. But when, when mm-hmm. we take a deal to market, we've got 20 to 30 groups looking at the opportunity, submitting letters of intent. We're negotiating to get those against one another. And I look back at the comps for 2022 for our company, and our average closing was north of 200% of collections. We've traded deals as 500% of collections. But that's, that's just... A function of what multiple a buyer paid on their EBITDA revenue, just in and of itself, is just cocktail conversation. It's kind of worthless. Matter of fact, I was just in a call with a CPA firm right before you and I got on this call, and they said that they're working with a client that has nine million dollars of revenue and zero profitability, and we see it all the time. Like yeah. Revenue is it's interesting, but it, it and you have to have it pay the bills, but ultimately what buyers are interested in the DSO world is cash flow or EBITDA. That's what they're looking at and they're going to pay you. So if you've got a million dollars worth of EBITDA, they'd be willing to pay seven, eight times that million dollars for seven to $8 million valuation, even if it was coming off of a $4 million revenue business. So the time at the brokerage business was really, really good because I got intimately familiar with the income statement balance sheet and cash flows of doctors. I got more intimately familiar uh, with dentists, right? And what what what's driving their decision making and, and what I, I love most about it, especially compared to my days in investment banking, is you're speaking with the person every day whose life this deal is impacting. When you're an investment banker and you're talking to the treasurer of a publicly traded insurance company, it might help him hit his bonus, but it's not, it's not as emotionally charged. It's not as, for me, it's not as rewarding. Um so, I, you know, I just, it's a stark comparison, but it, it, I really prefer this work to the the work I did when I was an investment banker.
0: Yeah. That's interesting. So is Heartland the one who started buying single practices in the DSL space or or no?
1: Well, there've been a couple iterations of this, a couple of phases of this. Heart, Heartland is not, they're not the first to have done this. There were others that did it before, um, but they are certainly the largest today and the most prevalent today. They're buying over a hundred practices per year to add to their portfolio. And you know, when we started selling practices to Heartland 13, 14 years ago, maybe 15 years ago, I went out to Effingham and I spent time with Rick Workman and his team, especially his his and a team, because I wanted to understand how they thought about the market. And they were really, really good to me. He kind of peeled back the the layers of the onion and helped me see how they think about value creation mm-hmm. and how valuable individual practices could be for them when they ultimately sold their business, right? Because, Michael, they, they were thinking, you know, this, this is back over a decade. They would be purchased 12 times their adjusted EBITDA. And when they were looking at these solo locations, so like we're picking them up for four to five times, let's just use buying up. So the difference between the 12 that we sell for and the five that we buy at that delta of seven turns mm-hmm. is the arbitrage. And like, so we're going to make that on every deal. See, if you buy if you buy millions of dollars worth of EBITDA and you know you're getting seven times return on that, again, the delta between what you're going to be sold for and what you bought these things for, uh, it makes a heck of a lot of sense. I also learned from Harlan that they don't want to overpay. They don't have to. I mean, they're still reasonably successful with their growth. They softened on their stance around not negotiating. They're, they're certainly um, paying up more now than we've ever seen. But they were the 800-pound gorilla for a long, long time. And they really had the tiger by the tail uh, as a first mover who really got the systems right and really had the right business at the right time. But they're by no means the first. Okay, gotcha, gotcha.
0: So then, I like how you mentioned that, though. A lot of the times we talk about revenue. A lot of the times it's just, you know, cocktail talk. Um, So what really matters is the cash flow and EBITDA is what buyers want. Real quick, dumb it down for me. EBITDA, what does that mean?
1: Okay, so let's get the definition first, and then we'll talk about really kind of what it is. All right, so EBITDA is earnings, E, before B, interest, interest on your debt, taxes, and depreciation and amortization. Depreciation, if you talk with your CPA or if you know this, you depreciate your fixed assets, right? And it and effectively um, you're writing off the cost of that asset each and every month to inside of your business for tax purposes. And amortization appears when you buy goodwill, such as buying a dental practice. And really, depreciation and amortization are non-cash expenses. You're never cutting a check to depreciation. You're not writing out a check to amortization. They said these costs said we just lower your taxable income and allows you as the business owner to pay less tax. So that, that's the definition of what it is. So it's looking at your cash flow, irrespective of the assets you have in it, meaning mm-hmm. the chairs, the cone beam, the equipment. So that's depreciation. So that doesn't care what kind of asset you have. Doesn't matter if you built or bought it, right? Because that's the amortization. And it doesn't matter what your, what your capital structure looks like. Do you have a million dollars of debt or zero dollars of debt? EBITDA doesn't care because it's removing the interest. So now that we kind of understand the definition, let's just talk about conceptually what that really means. Um, It's really just operating free cash flow, right? It's it's at the end of the day, how much cash flow came from operations after we compensated the dentist owner like an associate. So after we paid the dentist owner 30% of collections, what's left over?
0: Gotcha. Okay. Interesting. So that's what matters. This right here. That's
1: all. Yeah, that's, so, you know, it is, that is the, Jumping off point for every conversation around value and sales price. Uh, and our team works really, really hard to get that number right and in a defendable position. So we, when, when a client comes on to work with us, we do a lot of work on the front end, um, digging around to the numbers, recasting the financial statements, double-checking all the accountants' work, and establishing our adjusted EBITDA that we take to market Because when you go through one of these transactions, it's very different than a dentist to dentist deal because there's so much money and so many people attached to this. Think about a DSO. Yeah, there's the leadership team and and all the employees. Then there's the private equity group that's actually supporting this with money. Then there's the lender that's providing debt to the DSO so they can buy more practices. So you've got a lot of... um, scrutiny on these numbers. And after you sign a letter of intent with the DSO, normally if the, if the business is, is up of enough size, they're gonna send all that financial diligence to a third-party accounting firm to run what is called a quality of earnings report, where they look at every expense, look at every source of revenue, look at all the ad banks that we created, and effectively they're verifying and validating our numbers. Sometimes what QB firms like to do is come back with a number that is less than we want to market with. Keep in mind, they're hired by the DSO, and if they can save the DSO money in, in some way by decreasing the EBITDA and decreasing the value with their view of EBITDA, well, then if I'm the DSO, I might be more likely to hire them again next time. At that point, that's when our analytics team spends a lot of time with the QV firm, negotiating with them and helping them see our version and our view. Of the adjusted EBITDA. So it's a it's a name EBITDA that gets tossed around a lot, but it is critically important in our world um, because it represents the the cash flow from operations that you, the owner, have enjoyed up till this point, and the new buyer will be should expect to enjoy on a go forward basis. Um, one final thing on EBITDA: uh, most buyers really want to focus their attention on the trailing twelve months EBITDA. I mean, what happened three years ago was interesting, but the last 12 months are probably the best indicator of what's going to happen in the next 12 months.
0: Mm. Okay. Interesting. And then you also mentioned that you worked for Affordable Dentures or yeah. you were in that dealer, right? You, you learned a lot from them. What was oh, the yeah. stuff that you learned?
1: Sure. So um, So I was in an operations and business development role there, and I was in one of these seats where... You know, you either flew out on Sunday or you flew out on Monday and you returned on Thursday or Friday. And I was living inside of these practices, helping them grow, helping find acquisition targets, you name it. Uh, So the first thing I learned was when I was a broker, we look at an income statement. I'm like, oh, all you need to do is uh, cut some cost here or maybe fire this person. You've created so much more value. Uh, But when you're living inside of the practice, it is a lot harder to save those dollars, or terminate that relationship with that person. Every business looks easy in a spreadsheet, candidly. uh, But when you get inside of it and interact with the people that actually make it work, it gets harder and harder and harder to cut costs and increase revenue. So that was kind of the first big takeaway. second thing I learned is is the power of a really, I guess, dental care. I mean, dad was a pediatric dentist and his patients loved him and the moms loved him. Um, but what Affordable Dentures was doing and is still doing was pretty transformational don't care. They, they were on the surface providing people dentures to walk around with for the rest of their life. But I saw more tears of joy after those dentures were placed in someone's mouth who hasn't had the courage to smile. That felt really good to be a part of that business. And, and I, I see that, I think that leaders who, in, in spot, inside the DSO space that firmly believe that they are doing good and can point to example after example after example of how their practice, their DSO, uh, their leadership team is doing good. They're companies that attract better people and and companies that retain people better as well. And certainly saw that at Affordable Ventures. The final thing I learned there, well, I would say that the, the next thing that we can move on was they had a three-ring binder and documentation. For just about every single thing that went on in that office, you know, here's how we open a practice. It's a three-inch, three-ring binder that I followed to the letter every time we'd open a, open up a new business or a new market, and it was extremely well thought out. It was continually iterated on and got better every time we would open a new practice or acquire a new practice. So that that was really fun to actually see standard operating procedures that were followed by all. And I, I think by having that level of, of clarity in the SOP and consistency in the follow-through uh, really enabled Affordable to scale at the rate at which they did. So yeah. I saw the power of SOPs.
0: And so you you were in this practice. I mean, and also at the same time, you're dealing with the, you learned a lot from the broker in North Carolina, your dad, all these people who own practices, and then you made your own and then it became stressful. Why? Wow.
1: Yeah. Yeah, so um, first things first, right? Starting any business is stressful. Um, and starting a business where you have to personally guarantee debt, that's stressful. Then owning a business that you have uh, started with personally guaranteed debt that you cannot influence revenue is terrifying. I am not a dentist. So when we opened our doors, we had a dentist that was going to work for us as an associate. Um, she lasted three days and I left. Oh wow! So here, yeah, yeah. So here, I had debt service. I got a full team, and I got no dentists. At this point in my life, I do not want to start another business where I cannot directly impact revenue. Thankfully, I was working with the dentist who did come in and help support the business to see patients to make ends meet. But that was a very, very stressful point in my life. It, you know, it alls well that ends well, and we found a remarkable associate who ultimately bought us out and became the practice owner. Um, but, you know, that that was, as as I tell some of my friends, that was not my highest and best use. Like I, got, I love what I learned from it, uh, but I did have a, a lot of self-awareness over that three to four year run because I thought in my heart of hearts that I wanted to own 10 locations and flip them and sell them for a couple million bucks and go to the beach. And what I learned is it's really hard to do that game. It's really hard to play that game. And something that I preach a lot is... Be sure that you want to head down that road. Be sure that you want to initially see your spouse and your kids less if you have kids. Be sure that you're comfortable with taking on additionally personal guaranteed debt. And know that going from one location to two locations is not twice as hard. It's probably four times as hard. And it's exponentially harder the bigger you get, unless you're willing to pay great people to buffer you from the stress. And every dollar that comes out of your pocket is less money you make. So we we regularly see guys who are scaling, you know, they, they've got a cash kill. they're like, that. I'm crushing it at this location. I'm going to buy my first, I'm going to buy my second location. And it doesn't go as well as the first one. Well, the first one's got, you know, 12 years of cultural integrity that that founder has placed in it each and every week before. And now they bought a new one and they can't work. They wonder why it's not working out the same way. Um, so. You know, Michael, when I had that one location, the original plan was to scale it. But as we started looking at additional sites, I just felt a pit in my stomach. And I'm like, I don't want to scale something that already gives me headache and heartburn. Mm-hmm. You know, we were profitable and we we did, I think on the revenue side of the equation, we did great. I mean 1.4 million, you know, in three and a half years is nothing to shake a stick at. It's really I'm really really proud of that number. Um, but it was just it was not the it was not the experience I thought it was going to be.
0: Yeah, that's powerful stuff, Kevin. I mean, I feel like a lot of the times we think that's the next step. We're like, okay, we we've capped out on our single practice. I got to open another one. And we kind of want to use the same blueprint for the first one to the second one and say like, oh, I already got it. I know how it's going to be. It's going to be successful yep. and everything, but it's not.
1: It's just hard, right? I, I think it's naive to believe going from one to two is is going to be just a little bit harder. We've seen so many entrepreneurial dentists do it. And and then they end up using the the cash flows from the first practice to help fuel the expenses of the second practice. And they end up making less money and and being so much more stressed out than they were when you just had one practice. It happens. And sometimes it's short-lived, just trying to get the wobbly practice up and on its feet and stable, but other times it is not. And they they stay in that second practice too long and don't cut their losses or think that they can buy their way into EBITDA down the line we we really push on folks to ask yourself why you want to go from one location to two and from two locations to board and let's let's start with the end in mind so we know where we're going and we can be better selected with you know what we're looking for in a in a target what we're looking for in an associate what we're looking for in a potential partner because it's it's just it's too easy to make mistakes without
0: a plan let me ask you that then, in your experience and what you've seen, when is it time to cut your losses? When is it time to say like, I'm, I think I'm just going to sell now, I can't?
1: Um, so is, is the question, when is it time to cut my losses with, with, a, with a business that's a dog? Like if I've got a collection of practices and I have one that's just month after month, quarter after quarter, year after year, not profitable, when's the right time to, to cut it loose? Yeah. Yeah. So... Hard to say, right? Because I, I don't I don't know if it's because sometimes folks believe it's just three days away from being profitable, right? It's just three weeks away from being profitable. Yeah. Let me tell you what my experience is: is when we work with clients that have individual practices that are EBITDA negative, cash flow negative, when when we're working with them, uh, Michael, we tell them to please contact a loan pool broker and sell that business for eighty percent of collections. Because none of our buyers are going to want it, and they're going to look at it as a distraction for both resources and dollars. So we really like to clean up the practice list and get anything that's even on negative, unless there's a really good story that that we all appreciate, understand, and we can get buyers to believe. Um, I want to see negative EBITDA businesses out of the portfolio as we are going to market. It confuses the buyer because then the story is Michael. He's a great operator. But he's got this one dog. It's negative. It's got negative EBITDA, it has had for the last three years. Uh, but don't look at that one. Let's just look at the other ones. I'd love to not have any black eyes on the deal that we're taking to market. Gotcha.
0: What is a good story then? Have you ever been like, okay, let's keep it? Let's keep it because of the story. What was the story?
1: Yeah. 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 So it, startups are a great example of that. I mean, we, we have a great client that builds a new startup. Let's call it the, in the um, greater New York area right before COVID. Open their doors right before COVID. Um, the the rate shut down in in New York and the and of course the rest of the rest of the nation. It is a beautiful facility. It is almost profitable today, and it's followed their model to a T. They like to be in certain locations, certain zip codes, with this type of demographic patient around them. And in that situation, although it's been a couple of years, we were not advocating that they they shutter the doors there. But we thought that was actually value added because it has yet to realize the growth and some buyer gets to enjoy it after they close on a transaction. So that, that's an example of, of why you'd want to keep it open. Another example may be that you, you've lost an associate and that's been the big train and you've been the one, the doctor owner who's driving down and spending night and nights in hotel rooms and can only get down there three nights a week mm-hmm. all the practice, five night a week practice. Like if you, if you just have an an associate issue. You might want to hang on to that one as well if it's a short-term associate issue.
0: Gotcha. Okay, that's good. So these are some of the reasons why some. Uh, so what are some of the reasons why someone should, I guess, start thinking about selling? Although they're they're profitable and things like that, they're they're not thinking about retirement. But down the road, they're they're saying, you know what, we're I I, I don't plan to work till I'm ninety or eighty, you know, kind of thing. So it's really neat in this lot of work
1: we we work with a lot of thirty-year-olds want to monetize the equity in their practice. 30, 40, 50, 60, like there's a bell curve to it, right? I mean, most of our clients are probably in their 50s, but a large portion are in their 30s and 40s. Yeah. I think that's, I mean, they, they built these businesses to sell them. And what I like about that is they, when they were building their business, they said, here's, here's what I want the end game to look like. I would like and everybody's story is different. Some want $10 million after debt, taxes, and fees. Okay, great. And they set that as their goal and they and they bought just enough practices and business, just enough EBITDA and work with just enough doctors to get there. And then once they got there, they go, I don't want to take on any more risk. I don't want to take on any more debt. I would like to, you know, get my $10 million after debt taxes and fees and roll equity into a bigger business that has more sophistication, a bigger DSO that has they can probably turn my equity role into two, three, four times the initial dollar amount invested. But the key, the key is just knowing, like, what your number is and what is it going to take. If you, you can move the goalpost on yourself. That's fine. But don't be afraid to sell and get out. I mean, look, the dental practice valuations are really healthy. And they have been going up every single year since I got involved in this business seven years ago. Now, there is a storm cloud on the horizon right now. And, and the dental industry has seen storm clouds before. Um, This one is inside of this cloud, there's looming concerns around a a big R recession, Um, Mm -hmm. the rising cost of debt through increased interest rates by the Fed, uh, and inflation and and the wages. So we're seeing margin compression. We're seeing the cost of debt financing go up. When debt financings go up, DSOs say, I can't afford it. It's going to cost me more now to do a $10 million deal because of the debt service on the interest. So I'm going to pay you less because I got to keep my returns where they are. It feels like we're at a place where valuations could begin to plateau and potentially even correct a little bit. Uh, But I I don't see that in the market today. we're, We're seeing a little bit here and there. But on the most part in 2022, our clients did as good or better than our clients did in 2021. I'm hoping I'm able to say that at the end of this year, but I don't know for certain. So if you've got, either for your listeners that are like contemplating, should I sell now or should I wait? If you're thinking about selling in the next 12 to 18 months, my recommendation is to sell now. If you're happy holding onto your business for 24 months and maybe get through this cycle, whatever this is, you may be better off holding onto the business and operating it through whatever tumultuous time we've got heading our way.
0: Okay. And if they wanted to sell, they can just contact you, right? Sure. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. Interesting. You mentioned that dental practice valuations are really healthy, although there's a storm right now coming along, right? What stats, like statistics, can you share with us when it comes to understanding the, the health level of these valuations?
1: Yeah. Let me let me I, let me pull a presentation that we just worked on recently. Bear with one second. Oh, cool. If you want, you can also share a screen. It's so valuations. Let me let me touch on this. Okay. So average exit multiples uh, for our for our clients in 2022, keep in mind the average is just like the mathematical mean. Sometimes it's the number, but the, the number might actually never really happen. So, you know, there's 50% of the deals that happened above the average, 50% that happened below the average. But in totality, the average exit multiple across all closed deals was 7.8 times The adjusted EBITDA. Uh, For group practices, it was eight times. And then for solo practitioners, it was 7.1 times EBITDA. So some really some pretty healthy multiples there. But I'll also say we trade a handful of deals north of 10 times. We've got offers right now for 10 times on some pretty ridiculous, arguably low uh, operational EBITDAs. So it's it's kind of an ever moving thing, but this these numbers that I shared with you the average is as good or better than the comps from two thousand twenty one. So it feels like stable stable to up from twenty one to twenty two. It will be interesting to see what happens in twenty twenty three. I feel really good about the first half of the year. We've got a lot of deals closing in January. We've got a ton of deals we are bringing to the market right now. That'll all be closed up by July August. I feel good about. I just feel good that DC has like quieted down, right? We've got, we finally solved the house. We got that vote squared away. The uncertainty of the political, of US political world is less right now. Now we're going to be going into an election cycle pretty soon. Something that's going to be chaotic for all of us investors and all of us M&A guys, uh, M&A, MA advisors. But I feel really good about valuation the first half, maybe even as late as the third quarter of this year. Um, because there's just so many buyers with access to capital, and it feels like we're, we're going through a relatively quiet news cycle on the political side. The Fed's already said they might raise rates two more times. It feels like they're doing a good job of communicating that. And that's already baked into Wall Street. It's already baked into our world. Um, so as so long as nothing unforeseen happens like, oh, I don't know, other black swan event like COVID, I think I think we're going to really be okay.
0: Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Awesome. Now these next questions are just to get into the head of someone who isn't totally involved on the clinical side of dentistry, right? Um, to you, Kevin, what would you like to see more from a dentist? What would
1: I like to see more from is a patient or yeah, as an so advisor? Both. Let's go with both. Okay. So I'll tell you, I will I go see I go see the dentist that bought the practice that we sold to him. So I still go there. It's still my mm-hmm. little business baby. I want to see it kind of grow up and, and continue to crop and grow and prosper. Uh, he does a really good job of informing me about what's going on. Meaning he's got big, he's got best in class technology, including cone beam and intraoral cameras to where I get to take the 3D tour of my mouth. He gets to show me if there's any issues. And, you know, th- those tools allow me to get excited about fixing things in my mouth. Now, I haven't had any, any major issues. But I do think the more we built the business around technology. So I do think dentists could do a lot more with tech to inform their clients, their patients. So their patients are are really buying in on treatment the minute they see it. I just I think that that and for him to be there and, and kind of walk me through it and coach me into it um, really helps me. I mean, I just know he's educating me so much even when there is an issue. The answer is, yeah, we just got to fix it. Whatever the answer is, we just got to fix it. So there's, there's that. And then on a, I guess, for, if I take off the patient hat and put on the m and advisor hat, it would be telling dentists to not fall for the trick or the, I guess, the, the false information, the fake news that you have to have a lot of locations in order to be successful. The number of locations even matters. Uh, what, as, as we started this conversation today talking about EBITDA, that's the primary driver. And you you can build a business that has a million or $2 million of EBITDA underneath one roof. And that is a lot more valuable than having to cobble together eight practices to get to $2 million of EBITDA from a risk-reward perspective. So, again, I'm going to repeat that. It's more valuable to have. The the most valuable business you can build in the dental space is the highest number of chairs, most doctor redundancy, how revenue, nice product mix, and the largest amount of EBITDA where where risk begins to enter the picture is that next location and the location after that. And all of a sudden, if I keep doing that, you know over the course of the year to get to two million dollars of EBITDA, I got eight cultures. I got eight associate doctors, I got eight landlords, um, and I might have three practice management software, so I gotta manage now. Now that sounds really stressful compared to one location, eight nine million dollars of revenue, two million dollars of eBITDA. So don't don't fall for, I've got to have more locations to
0: create value. I like that. I like that a lot. You know what I mean? Focus on one thing, grow grow it as much as you can. If I guess they had to scale, open another one, that's an on them kind of thing, right? Yeah.
1: It it, it just, I like to see entrepreneurial dentists either maximizing the utilization at at A1 and a location or be able to see the pathway there, right? It Just buying in another business because you're bored Although, you know, you got, so if you, you haven't maxed out the utilization or squeezed all the benefit you can from the most recent acquisition, but you're buying another business because you just like buying businesses, the tendency is to turn your back on them and just grow through acquisition. Uh, but that is not the most valuable way to build a business.
0: Yeah. Okay. And then right now, what do you hate about dentistry? What do I hate about dentistry? Or dislike. Um, yeah. I think the
1: biggest challenge dentists have right now is well so so let's let's back up a little bit. What I hate for the dentist is what they're experiencing in staff shortages and wage inflation. Mm. Okay. It's really, really hard to find a great hygienist in Charlotte for less than I don't know, 60 bucks an hour, maybe 70? Like it's crazy. No. Good news, dentistry has really nice margins, profit margins, and can afford to pay more. But it does feel like dentists are in a little bit of a pickle, uh, especially with respect to hygiene, because like, a lot of really, really good hygienists retired during COVID. Hygienists with decades of experience uh, that were, were paid were paid well, but were super productive. Now the talent pool is is more shallow with less talent, and they want to get paid more then the hygienist had been with you for three decades was making. I think that's a major pain point. Now it's going to take some years to wash this through the system because anybody who's let's say cutting hairs or a dental assistant or is working you know in retail and sees what hygienists are making, it has an affinity towards healthcare and dental hygiene. I mean, we're talking hundred plus thousand dollars a year compared to what they could be making in retail. Like that's a draw. And the world, the world will get out and there'll be an overcorrection. Michael will have too many hygienists here in about three or four years, right? So it it just kind of, the pendulum swings too far in both directions, but I do feel for dentists that have patients that want to see them, and I have hygienists that want to get paid too much, and their choices are not good. It's like, I can overpay for the talent and hope that I can diagnose treatment from it, or I can, you know, not see the patients at all. And, I you know, thankfully, most dentists are just
0: paying up on salaries and wages and and making less in their hygiene department. Hmm. Okay. That's interesting. And then, so right now, what do you love about dentistry? Absolutely love. Yeah. So
1: I love the entrepreneurial spirit. That's really entered the space. You know, dad's 76. It was never, ever, ever on his radar to add ortho to his pedo practice or add multiple locations uh, around the greater Montgomery area where he practiced or, or even think about leveraging his brand into other markets. And and now, I mean, the conversation you and I are having is is a conversation that I think every dental school student is thinking of. Mm-hmm. It's how do I want to leverage this license in creative ways uh, to create wealth for myself and to, to you know help help others in the community to where I don't have to depend on my hands to make me a living. Because dentists work kind of like plumbers for a little while, right? Like, dentists and plumbers are similar in the fact that they don't make money unless they short for work. Uh, and entrepreneurs make money while they're at the beach. So to see the evolution of entrepreneurship in the business of dentistry is it's exhilarating. I'm happy for, for everybody. And ultimately, it's good for all of us, patients included, uh, because access to care goes up. And then for the dentist, he or she can decide just how much they want to work and how much time they want back if they're willing to give up some money
0: okay that's good that's interesting awesome any final words for our listeners for this episode kevin
1: yeah i guess just this um one one thing i want to get get out into the market is you know if you are contemplating a sale and you telegraph that either to to the world or not uh, and you have a business that is of size it is my suspicion that you have a letter been intent from a DSO on on the side of your desk already, and I can just tell you without a doubt you should not take that offer. That is not the highest offer. It likely might not be the best cultural fit or the best operational fit, and you deserve to go through a marketed process and so you can see the entire waterfront of opportunity that's available. Because every time we work with someone that has an unsolicited offer you know, we're able to increase that by close to 40% by taking it through a marketing process. So if you have an unsolicited offer, don't take it. If you're interested in maybe selling, call us, call somebody who does what we do. They're capitalists. And I'm not blaming them because I'm a capitalist and you're a capitalist. Mike. it's not a dirty word, mm-hmm. but, but we want them to pay top dollar. We want them to be pissed off that we, they had to pay that much to partner with you. Just don't, don't sign the unsolicited offer. That's what I found was up.
0: Nice, Kevin. Thank you so much for being with us. It was a pleasure. But before we say goodbye, can you tell our listeners where they can find you? Yeah,
1: sure. Uh, easiest place to find us is you know, just, uh, online. You just go to tuskpartners.com. It's the quickest way to get a hold of us. Uh, go there. We're, we're always putting out new blogs, new webinars, you name it. We, we firmly believe in educating everyone so they can make well-informed decisions. Uh, around the value of their business and exit cleaning, but certainly just just the websites. Michael Best has got all of our contact information there as well. And again, it's tusk, T-U-S-K dash or dot partners.com. Awesome.
0: So guys, that's going to be in the show notes below. And Kevin, thank you so much for being with us. It was a pleasure and we'll hear from you soon.
1: Thanks, Michael. Good to see you.
0: Hey guys, thank you so much for tuning into that episode. And Kevin, thank you so much for being a part of the podcast, bud. We truly appreciate it. Guys, if y'all have any questions, please feel free to reach out to Kevin. Go in the show notes below, uh, click on any of his links, reach out to him, ask any questions that may have came up uh, in your mind throughout what you were listening to in this episode. Also, you can find him on the Dental Marketer Society Facebook group if you want. Join that Facebook group. It's going to be in the show notes below, the link to that. And then you can also ask a question to any of our, list, uh, any of our guests um, that's come on the podcast in there as well. And at the same time, guys, don't forget Check out Dandy. I mean, I know at the beginning of the episode, I mentioned the five reasons, right? Increased efficiency, better patient outcomes, all-in-one management platform, expert training and support, and virtual consultations. They are on the cutting edge of technology and dentistry. And I know you're tired of dealing with the same old time-consuming error-prone lab processes. If If you're just tired of your lab, right, your dental lab, I highly recommend just checking out Dandy. And at the same time, the cherry on top. They're giving you a free three-shaped Trio scanner, so you're already saving over 20000 bucks right there. And they're also going to give you $250 in lab credits just for being a listener of this podcast. So click on the first link in the show notes below to find out more and go ahead and check out Dandy. So guys, thank you all so much for supporting the podcast, and I'll talk to you in the next episode.